Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Before we turn to 1 Corinthians, um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the town of Corinth. And so, does anybody know, the year was 1953, and there's something famous happened that year. It was the release of Playboy magazine, Hugh Hefner's Playboy magazine. And so, what was considered pornographic in 1953 is now mainstream and sold in a lot of stores that you can go to that three-year-olds can see. Grand Theft Auto has just come out, the new version of it. Scenes of torture, scenes of rape, scenes of sexual promiscuity. Teenagers are eating it up like crazy. You've got Victoria's Secret commercials that you kind of have to change the channel when they come on. You guys know what happened in the 2004 Super Bowl with the Janet Jackson thing. Uh, by conservative estimates, the worldwide sex industry brings in $57 billion a year. I came across a recent university study that was very interesting. What they were trying to do was they were trying to compare the views of men in their 20s who had never been exposed to pornography with those who were regular users of pornography. The problem is they couldn't do the study because they could not find anybody in their 20s that had never been exposed. Uh, The average number of pornographic emails received by each each day per user in America is 4.5. Um, The number of pornographic sites on the Internet, 12% of all websites, 4.2 million sites. Daily Internet searches for pornographic terms, 68 million. Individual visitors to pornographic websites each month, 72 million. Pornographic emails sent each day, 2.5 billion. That's worldwide. Yeah, worldwide. Um, So when you study Corinth... There's a correlation to why I'm bringing up pornography, why I'm bringing up the sex-crazed culture. And so here's one of the things that I want to talk about is I want to talk about, as we start 1 Corinthians tonight, um, I want us to talk about the town of Corinth because we're going to be needing to understand the actual the town of Corinth before we start anything. And so if there was one word that would describe the town of Corinth, it is pride. Pride. And there's three overarching characteristics of the town of Corinth. And if you remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and so these people are coming out of this culture. So what was Corinth known for? What what were the three big ticket items that Corinth was known for as we start our study of 1 Corinthians? Well, here's the first one. Corinth was the, 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 the most prosperous and wealthiest cities in Greece. It actually rivaled Athens as a city of industry. It was strategically located on a harbor where a bunch of rivers came together, and it was right on the sea, so it was a seafaring city. So a lot of sailors came to port, and what sailors do when they come to port, you guys can fill in the blanks. It was a port city. 
So it was a wealthy commerce city. It was a port city. If you could think of a, a, a of an of an equivalent in America, it would probably be like a city like San Francisco, New Orleans, New York City, Vegas. A big, wealthy, prosperous city with a lot of industry that's strategically located where a lot of people are coming and going. Okay. The second thing it was known for, it was the center of sports and entertainment. It was a seaport city. And so the Greek god of the sea was Poseidon or Neptune. And so every other year, opposite of the Olympics, the Olympics were held in Athens. Opposite the Olympics, every other year in Corinth, there was the, it's hard to say, the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games. It was in honor of Poseidon. And when you think about the Isthmian Games... It's very eerie how some of the competitions are very similar to what we have in today's world. One of the big things they had was chariot races. What do we have today? NASCAR. Same thing. You go around a big circle. They had wrestling. We have WWE. They also had an interesting singing competition in the Isthmus Games. We have American Idol, we have X Factor, we have The Voice. They had this very interesting event called Pancration. It was a mixed martial arts fighting with no rules except you couldn't poke someone's eyes out or bite them. So we have mixed martial arts today and cage fighting. So it sounds very eerily similar to America, Corinth. Powerful, prosperous, obsessed with sports, the Isthmian Games. But here's the third thing, and this was really the kicker. It was a center of overt sexual immorality. Behind the city, 2,000 feet up, behind the city on this big rock, it was called the Acro-Corinth. The Acro-Corinth, I can't spell. That sounds like acorn. Acro-Corinth, there was this temple. So this temple was 2,000 feet, and it was a temple to the goddess Venus or Diana. And so what happened was she was the goddess of love. And let me listen let me let me read to you what the Greek geographer Strabo wrote about Corinth in 20 AD. He said the temple of Aphrodite was once so rich that it had acquired more than a thousand prostitutes donated by both men and women to the service of the goddess. And because of them, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. The ship captains would spend fortunes there. And so the proverb says, the voyage to Corinth isn't just for any man. So 2,000 male-female temple prostitutes coming down from the Acro-Corinth into Corinth on a daily basis to engage in prostitution with these sailors that are coming to shore. And so kind of it had the nickname, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And here's the thing about Corinth. Sexual immorality was so prevalent, was so infamous in Corinth, that in the entire Greek world, when you wanted to say that a person was immoral or a person was sexually promiscuous, you would say they were playing the Corinthian. So it, ha- it assumed a nickname. So I don't know what a nickname would be today for being a, a overt sexually immoral person, but... It, it was equated with Corinth. So Corinth had the reputation, okay, it's a rich, it's a wealthy city, it's a sports-obsessed city, and it's highly sexually promiscuous city. Does this sound familiar? 
Does it sound like where we live? It's the same issue. And so what I want us to do is I want to, before we jump into the book of Corinth, I want us to look and see how Corinth, the church in Corinth was founded. So let's go to Acts chapter 18. And we're just going to spend a little bit of time in Acts because Paul goes to, this is on his second missionary journey. And if you remember, he goes to, he, he gets the uh, Macedonian call and goes across and goes to Philippi, and then goes to Thessalonica, then he goes to Athens. He's making his way through Greece. And then in Acts chapter 18, he gets to Corinth. So let's just read the first 17 verses of Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, verse 1. After this... After what? We looked at this last week, didn't we? When Paul was on Mars Hill in Athens and he kind of engaged the unknown God. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Let's just stop right there. What Paul's, Paul's um, normal operating procedure when he'd go into a big city was to do what first? If you remember, we studied Acts a few years ago, so it might be hard. He goes where first? He goes to the synagogue. Because in the synagogue, he's going to find people at least have some cultural understanding of the gospel in the sense they understand who God of the Old Testament is. So he goes to the synagogue, and he's, he's reasoning them with, with Jesus, and, and, and how do they receive him? They don't like him. They start uh, um, opposing him. Um, basically, he says, you know what? I, I'm not going to preach to you anymore. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And so they start a church where? Right next door in a Gentile's house. So the church in Corinth was started under kind of some shaky circumstances with the Jews being upset with Paul. And, and look what it says there. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So, so a, 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 a high-ranking Jewish official becomes saved. His household gets saved. The church is birthed in his house next to the synagogue. Paul is there with who? Priscilla and Aquila. They're tent makers. So this is where Paul meets up with Priscilla and Aquila who become really his right-hand couple, the couple that comes alongside of him and helps him in his ministry. Now, Paul is discouraged in Corinth. Because things aren't going well. He's getting a lot of opposition. Um, and, and so here's what happens in verse 9. We can kind of read between the lines that Paul was struggling. But Jesus comes to him in a vision and reminds him of something that's very exciting. He says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people, 
And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So he was afraid and he wanted to give up. This is Paul, the guy that we think of as being this strong, I'm going to go be evangelistic. Paul is struggling. He's probably like, we can read between the lines. He's probably saying to Jesus, I'm just going to throw in the towel. It's not worth it. People aren't getting saved. There's opposition. Lord, send me to somewhere else. It's unfruitful ministry. I'm kind of scared. I don't want to speak up. I'm out of here. And Jesus shows up in a vision and says, what? Number one, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. In other words, keep on preaching the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And don't be silent, for I'm with you. They're not going to attack you. But notice what he says. I have many in this city who are my people. Meaning, there are many that God has chosen to be saved in Corinth who have not yet been saved. And so it gives Paul the confidence to know that it may look like there's no success. It may look like there's no fruit. It may look like there's nothing happening in my ministry. But God reminds him, there are people out there waiting to believe and repent. They just haven't yet. You need to go share the gospel with them, and God will call out his people. So, Paul, you keep doing that. And what does he do? He stays there how long? A year and six months, a year and a half. So he stays a year and a half. So it's probable if we date things that he arrived in the fall of A.D. 50 and stayed there 18 months. And upon his departure, Apollos becomes an influential leader. Apollos becomes kind of the lead pastor in Corinth for a while. And if you remember, his theology is kind of good. And Priscilla and Aquila have to pull him aside and say, you're, you're kind of halfway there, but let's, let's fill in the gaps. So what happens is this. Paul leaves Corinth. And then he goes on his third missionary journey to Ephesus. And Paul stays the longest period of time in Ephesus than he really stays anywhere. He stays three years planting the church in Ephesus. And it's believed that sometime during his stay in Ephesus, during those three years, he writes 1 Corinthians back to the church that was planted in Crispus's house next to the synagogue to address these issues. We also realize that a report was brought to him by members of Chloe's household. We'll, we'll see that as we go on. Whoever Chloe was, she was probably an influential woman in the church. Chloe sent a letter to Paul saying, we've got some questions. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians back to answer some of the questions that Chloe's household had. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to say, now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning such and such. And so most scholars believe that he's addressing issues that were brought to him from Chloe's household. So here's the Corinthian church. It's got some major problems, doesn't it? Let me just give you an overview. Like I'll, I'll give you the outline of Corinthians, okay? The first couple of chapters, there's divisions and factions. They're, they're fighting. Then you've got incest and sexual immorality and you've got this whole church discipline issue where, they, where Paul says, kick the guy out. Then you've got lawsuits among believers. You've got misunderstandings about marriage and divorce. You've got idolatry. You've got getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. You've got abusing spiritual gifts. You've got lacking love and a misunderstanding of the resurrection. Sounds like your poster child for a very healthy church, doesn't it? So here's our question as we start 1 Corinthians. So we can turn to 1 Corinthians now with that background of how the church is planted. Here's the question that, that will be plaguing us as we go through this whole book because you'll be wanting to ask this question over and over again. So here's the ultimate question. Can a true Christian 
actually behave in ungodly ways and embrace distorted theology. Is there such a thing as Christians behaving badly? And we have to say yes, because Paul wrote an entire letter to address Christians behaving badly. So here's the issue of 1 Corinthians. You've got some immature believers who are getting caught up in their culture, and Paul needs to straighten them out. So I think 1 Corinthians could be called Christians behaving badly and how Paul answers it. So the question we've got to ask is, is there such a thing as an immature Christian who's influenced by their culture? And what's Corinth's culture? Materialism, sports, and sex. We should probably have the youth in here tonight, shouldn't we? <laughs> so Paul opens with a very clear word about the issue of a Christian's position before he gets to their practice. Paul could have come in guns blazing and said, you need to do this, 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 you're not doing this. He does that, but that's not how he starts. What he starts is he comes to this mixed up, confused, immature group of Christians and Paul first wants to remind them something very important. He wants to remind them that they are Christians. You're Christians, so act like Christians. You're not non-Christians, you're Christians, so act like Christians. So let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. That's as far as we're going to get tonight, okay? Because I started doing this, I'm like, we can't go much further. I don't want to inundate you. Sometimes I feel like after I teach, I'm like, that's a lot of information. So we're going to go in bite-sized pieces and let you digest the bite-sized pieces, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is the greeting in the, in the opening Thanksgiving. So is everybody there? 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then in verse 10 he says, I appeal to you, brothers, and then he goes into his appeal. He doesn't start with, I appeal to you, brothers, to get your act together. He starts with what we looked at last year, if you remember, identity, who they are in Christ, position. So what he does here, and this is what Paul does in all of his letters, he starts with what we call the gospel indicatives. A gospel indicative, I don't care if you remember the word gospel indicative, what I want you to remember is what it is. In other words, the theological truth is about the gospel and who we are in Christ. Paul always starts his letters with who we are in Christ. And he wants to remind us of our position. Before he gets to conduct, so, so here's what Paul's doing. He's starting with position, and then he's going to move to practice. 
So let me ask you a question. If you get practice first before position, what's the danger of how you go about living the Christian life? You can either end up becoming very legalistic because you can think you can do it, or you can get very defeated thinking that I can't do this. And you get very confused in how to live the Christian life. So what Paul wants to do is say, hey, before we start talking about what you should and shouldn't do, let's talk about your position. Let's talk about your calling. Let's talk about what it truly means to be a Christian. Then he's going to address what we call the moral imperatives, the things that we have to do, the commands, the exhortations, how we're to live and how we're to obey in light of who we are. So both are in the book of 1 Corinthians. You've got practice and you've got position. There's some practices of the Christian life they're not doing. There's some practices of the Christian life they need to start doing. But before Paul addresses that, he wants to go to position first because position is the foundation for how you live the Christian life. Or you can say it this way. You've got to understand your identity before you get to the obedience. However word you want to use. Your position, your identity, who you are in Christ, what the gospel says about you. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to ask you a very simple yet profound question. And maybe you've thought about this your entire life, but you should be. And it's simply this. What is a Christian? What's a Christian? And what I want us to do from the first nine verses of the book of 1 Corinthians, and again, this is not an exhaustive list because we've got the whole New Testament that tells us what a Christian is. I want us to see eight truths that emerge from 1 Corinthians verses 1 through 9 that tell us what a Christian is. Now again, this is not everything that a Christian is, but we're looking specifically at this text. But let's see how Paul defines what a Christian is. Because he wants to remind them, you're Christians. What is a Christian, Corinthian church? Here's what a Christian is. Okay, now that you understand that you are one, Start acting like one. But let me start with what what is one. So here's the first thing a Christian is. What's number one? A Christian is called by the will of God. One word that you will see repeated all throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is the word calling. Let's look at it. Right from the very beginning, Paul, called by the will of God. Okay? Go down to verse, oh, yeah, verse 2. Called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Go down to verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. This whole idea of being called. A Christian is called by the will of God. Then in verse 9, what does it say? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So a Christian is one who's been sovereignly called to God. And so here's the question. What has God called us out of? God has called us out of something into His family. So before God called us to salvation, what was our identity? What was our position before we were Christians? We were enslaved. We were spiritually dead. We were part of the kingdom of, dark, of darkness. Paul elsewhere in Romans chapter, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, no one is righteous, 
No, not one. No one seeks, or no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. So what does that tell us about our relationship to God before we're Christians? We're not good. We don't seek. We are not righteous. We are not good. Our deeds are worthless. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from where? The domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what was our position before we were Christian? The domain of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. So we were whatever term you want to use, there's a bunch of biblical terms that talk about what a Christian was before they were a Christian. You were dead. You were enslaved. You were not good. You were in the kingdom of darkness. You were under God's condemnation. So let me ask you a theological question. If that's true, if those passages are true, and we would believe those are true, right? Will we believe that no one seeks for God? Will we believe that no one is good? Will we believe that we're spiritually dead? Will we believe that we were in the domain of darkness? So here's a theological question. If that is true, how can a person answer the call? If God calls you to salvation, do you have the inherent ability to answer the call? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, before you answer that question, let me give you an illustration from John chapter 11. We see it illustrated. Jesus illustrates it for us in the death of Lazarus. In John 11, 38 through 44, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. King James says, It stinketh. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So let me ask you just a question. Does it make sense to call to a dead man and ask him to come out of the tomb? Does it make any logical sense? If you're standing there at the tomb and Lazarus has been dead for four days and Jesus calls him, Lazarus, come out. What are you thinking? Can a dead person get up and walk out without Jesus there? Okay, let's just say without Jesus there. Without Jesus there, yeah, let's just say, yeah. Without Jesus there, can it, can, can it do that? So how can Lazarus respond to the call? If, if Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. If he says, I'm not dead yet. He's watched a lot of Monty Python episodes and he's not dead. Okay? So here's the issue. When Jesus calls... There's power in the call to affect the spiritual life that allows the person to answer the call. You understand that? Lazarus had no power within himself to answer the call. But what did Lazarus do? He got up and he came out. 
The only way he got up and came out was because Jesus called him and there was power in the call. So when Jesus calls a sinner to salvation and the sinner answers the call, it's because God has given that sinner the power to be able to be raised to life and to come. And why did Jesus just say Lazarus? If he had said, come out, who would have come out of the tomb? Everybody. Because there's power in the call. So when God calls a sinner to salvation, there's power, there's inherent power in the call because it comes from Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit that affects the response in the person to be able to come. So let me ask you a question. Should this affect the way we do evangelism and share the gospel? So let me ask you a question. We've talked about this. What's the spiritual condition of of every person to whom you share the gospel? If a person's lost and you're sharing the gospel, then what's their spiritual condition? They're Lazarus spiritually. They're rotting in the tomb of their sins, spiritually dead, in bondage. They're in the domain of darkness. They're under God's condemnation. They're a child of wrath. They're spiritually dead. So here's the question. Why share the gospel with them? It seems like it would be foolish, wouldn't it? Because do you have enough persuasion to actually affect the call? Can you be clever enough and persuasive enough and good enough to get a person to answer the call? Even the greatest pastor is not that good. The greatest pastor on his best day can't do that. So here's the issue. You and I and the sinner are both powerless to produce the call. But what's the one thing we have to do? you have to tell them to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, you're playing mental gymnastics. If I tell a person to call upon the name of the Lord and they can't call upon the name of the Lord and you can't give them the power to call upon the name, then why are you asking them to call upon the name of the Lord? There's such a thing as an external call and an internal call. Let me explain the two. The external call is when I stand up on a Sunday morning and I call everybody in the room to repent and believe in Jesus. The call goes out of my mouth to everybody within earshot. Or when you're sitting across the, the, the um, restaurant and having coffee with a person and you, and you say, you know what, what, has what I said to you make sense? Would you be willing now to call upon the name of the Lord? <coughs> Anytime you call a person to respond to the gospel, that's the external call of the gospel. But yet, there's an internal call that goes out and actually affects the salvation. The Holy Spirit brings the internal call. So let me ask you a question. Why do some people believe and others don't? If all things are equal and everybody's spiritually dead, why do some people believe and some people not? Is it because the people that believe were like more spiritually adept? They were more sensitive? They were, they were somehow better? Or is it because when God calls them, He does what He did to Lazarus? When God calls, and we, we, we can't control this. All we can control is the outward call. But when we do the outward call and somebody gets saved, what's the one thing we can say? It wasn't me that did it. And it really wasn't them that did it. It was the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that did it and raised them to new life. Because you and I cannot bring a dead person to life. And so what... Paul is saying here is that he's been called by the will of God. They've been called to be saints. God is faithful whom you were called. He talks about this calling. So if you're a Christian here tonight, God has sovereignly called you out of darkness into his family. 
And here's the beauty of it. Did God have to do that? Was God obligated to do that? And his call is a call of love. I said this at Linda Baker's funeral, but I'll say it again. I've said it many times. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, I didn't, I didn't make up this up. Actually, Artaxerdia did it. Think of a difference between an invitation and a summons. What's an invitation? If Don and I get an invitation in the mail to attend a dinner party or a birthday party, we can look at it and say, oh, I don't really like that person. Or we can say, or whatever we say, we wouldn't say that. But like, <laughs> well, we can't make it. We just can't make it tonight. We've got other obligations. We, we couldn't find a baby. You can politely say, I'm not going to RSVP the invitation. I'm not going to come. No harm, no foul. It's an invitation. Okay. Let's say you get the little jury summons from Logan County you know, Courthouse, and it has your juror number, and you're supposed to call. You get a summons, and you're like, if you don't show up with the summons, what happens? You get in big trouble. So there's a difference between an invitation and a summons, right? One is something you can politely decline. One you have to respond to. So when God the Father calls sinners to repentance, is it an invitation or a summons? It's a summons from the king. And to refuse means to defy the authority of the king. Now, we invite people to Christ. But really, what did Paul say? God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a command. So when we call people to salvation, we stand up on a Sunday morning, or me, I stand up, you don't stand up. I sit up on a Sunday morning, I say, everybody who's here, the promise from Scripture is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if somebody's going to call upon the name of the Lord, it's because God has done the work to bring them to life to call upon the name of the Lord. So the first thing about a Christian, and so praise God, you are a Christian here tonight because God has called you. And he's called you out of darkness, and he's called you into light. He didn't have to call you, but he did, and there's power in that call. And you responded because God did something powerful in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and overcame your deadness and overcame your resistance and brought you to life. And praise God. because And here's the other thing about the beauty of this. When you share the gospel with someone and you botch it, or you think you botch it, does it depend on how good your gospel presentation is for God to save somebody? No. If it depended upon how slick we were, we'd be like neurotic, wondering if every word we said was right. You know, if God can speak through a talking donkey, Balaam's ass, then he probably can speak through us in ways we never imagined. And we can walk away from an evangelistic counter thinking, man, I, I totally... There's times where I stand up and I, I, we're driving home and I said, Don, did what I say make any sense? Because there's times you're preaching like, I don't think this is connecting. And you've probably had times where you've shared the gospel, you've, you've had a spiritual conversation with someone and you're like, I don't know if I connected, I don't know if this makes any sense. But here's the thing. If the call went out, God's word does not return void. And God will do the work. The, one, the only thing you can control is the call, the external call. Okay, so the first thing about a Christian is you've been called by the will of God. That's what Paul says. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. Now, obviously, that's his apostleship he's talking about there, but I believe that every Christian is called by the will of God. Consider your calling. Okay, here's the second thing that a Christian is. A Christian is sanctified in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then also he says, those called to be saints. 
sanctified saints. It's the same Greek word, hagias, hagiasmo. It's, it's the same root word. It's this whole idea of being sanctified. So Paul elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you, there's the calling again, is faithful, he will surely do it. He'll surely do what? Sanctify you completely. So as a Christian, you are sanctified, you are holy, you are a saint. Hebrews 10.10 And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now I want to teach you a little bit of Greek grammar here because it's important. When Paul says to those who have, to those sanctified, this is in what we call the perfect tense. There's two, there, there, there's a different past tense actions in the Bible. There's eris, there's imperfect, there's perfect, there's others. The perfect tense means this, the best way I can explain it. It means that an event happened in the past, it came to a completion in the past, but it has ongoing results that stand completed in the present and will go on into the future. Does that make sense? So let me give you a, a translation of this sanctified. To those who were once sanctified when they were called, who continue to be sanctified and will always be sanctified. I mean, Paul specifically used the perfect tense there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to speak theologically about the permanence of our salvation as saints. So it means this. We're called to be saints. saints. We're called to be saints and sanctified. And so what Paul is addressing here is our position. He's talking about our position first, not our practice, not our progress, because obviously we have periods of greater holiness in our behavior than others, aren't you? I mean, how many people here are perfect every day? I've drawn this many times. So for those listening online, this is like a, a graph. Down here on the bottom, you have the point. Let's call this is when you were sanctified. Let's use the biblical term. This is the point you were sanctified. This is the point where you were saved. You were called, whatever you want to use. And this is the moment you enter heaven or Jesus comes back. Either way, you're, you're gone. You're up there. Does your Christian life, is it a straight line on the graph in your progress? Does your progress look like that? I need to get a better pen here, uh, marker. What does it often look like? This, right? Now, if you were to plot your life on a bar graph here, it would show an overall trajectory of moving towards growth. But sometimes you're way down there, aren't you? And sometimes you're way down there. Paul's not addressing the progress here. Thank goodness. He's addressing our position. He's addressing our position. So here's the thing, Christian. We may need to change our terminology, and especially in the reform movement, we sometimes can focus so much on I'm a sinner saved by grace that we don't think about what our true identity is, that we're actually saints. We're a saint who happens to sin. See the difference? If you think of yourself as, oh, I'm just a poor sinner saved by grace, what's your default? I'm a sinner. That's my identity. What does Paul say? No, your identity is I'm a saint who happens to sometimes sin. 
Your position is one of being a saint. Now, that's not to inflate our ego. That's not to make us feel like we're, we're a saint is not like a Catholic thing where we put a person up on a pedestal because they've done such great things. There's no such thing as every Christian's a saint and every saint's a Christian. And it's your permanent condition. And because Paul is setting this foundation, why do you think Paul's setting this foundation on our position? Because he's going to address some pretty bad progress right from the bat. You guys are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, but you're saints. You guys are suing each other, but you're saints. You guys are having this incest in the church, and you're, you're proud of it, but you're saints. You guys are like not loving each other and abusing spiritual gifts and being all inflated in pride, but you're saints. You're Christians behaving badly. You're Christians, but you're behaving badly. So let's go back from the very beginning and address your identity. You are a saint. You are sanctified. You are called. That is your position. And because that's your position, just live like it. Act like who you truly are. That's why he can urge them to be holy. He can urge them to be holy because technically they are set apart to be holy. What does Peter say? In 1 Peter chapter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your ignorant, former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And sometimes holiness gets a bad rap. When was the last time you heard a sermon on holiness? Being holy. What's the first thing you think of when you think of holiness? Holier than thou. He's the person's a holy roller. What we've done is we've, we've often equated holiness with certain behaviors that certain churches don't do. We don't drink. We don't chew. We don't smoke and go with girls that do. We don't dance. We don't play cards. We don't go to movies. We only use a certain... What we do is we often put holiness in terms of outward behavior as opposed to holiness as a condition of who we are as a Christian And therefore, we should live a life sanctified. Sanctified simply means you're set apart by God. You're set apart for a purpose. God has called you out of darkness, and he set you apart for a purpose. Okay? So the first two things. Number one, we've been called out of darkness into light. And number two, we've been set apart. We've been sanctified. We are saints, sometimes behaving badly. That's the Corinthian church. Here's the third one. A Christian submits to the lordship of Christ. Notice in verse 2, Paul says, To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints together with all those who in every place, what? Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, Paul establishes the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, he didn't say Savior, Jesus Christ. Is there anything wrong with calling Jesus Savior? No, he's our Savior, but he's also what? Lord. The world likes Jesus as their Savior. Because what does that mean? Who doesn't want their sins forgiven? Who doesn't want to not have to go to hell? Who doesn't want to have a clear conscience? Who doesn't want the benefits of having Christ as your Savior? 
Most people would like that. But do most people like the lordship part? Oh, you mean I've got to submit to Jesus? I've got to follow Jesus? I've got to obey Jesus. He's got to be number one in my life. I've got to adjust my life under his priorities as opposed to my own. I've got to die to self and live for him. Uh, No, thank you. I like to get out a hell-free card and get my sins forgiven, but this whole lordship thing, don't bother me with that. That's way too radical. Can you take Jesus as your Savior and not take him as your Lord? You can't can't divide up his office. In Galatians chapter 6, what did Paul say? "But But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, if I'm going to boast about anything, if I'm going to live for anything, it's in the cross of Christ and he's the Lord of my life. And I've said goodbye to the world and I've attached myself to Christ as my Lord. And then we know what Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to a quote from A.W. Tozer. You've got to read Tozer. Here's what he says. The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. Stop right there. You can't be saved unless you're willing to be commanded by Jesus. That's a, that goes against our evangelical culture. That's, that's not easy believism. What's easy believism? believism? Oh, just say this quick prayer and ask Jesus in your heart and go live however you want. Jesus, the Lord will not save those whom He cannot command. He will not divide His offices. It should be can't. You can't believe in a half Christ. We take Him for what He is, the anointed Savior and Lord who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He would not be who He is if He saved us and called us and chose us without the understanding that can He can also guide us and control our lives. It's a great quote. I just love, the Lord will not save those whom He cannot command. Okay, so number one, we've been called. Number two, we've been sanctified. Number three, we've called upon or we've submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Here's the fourth one. We're answering the question again, what is a Christian? A Christian has not earned his or her salvation, but has received God's grace. Now, Paul starts in verse 4 with what we call the customary, the customary opening thanksgiving. He's giving his greetings. This is Paul. I'm writing this. This is who I am. Grace and peace to you. And then he's going to give thanks. I give thanks, verse 4, to my God always for you because of the what? Grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I want you to pay careful attention to the wording. Every word matters in Scripture. It's not haphazard why the words are there. If we believe that every word is inspired down to the actual construction of the word, what does it say about grace? It was what? It was given. The grace was given to you. Now, I'm going to may blow your minds here for just a minute, and you may disagree with me. There's a difference, I believe, and you can disagree with me on this. This is where you're free to disagree. I'm giving you my opinion. I think there's a huge difference between grace being offered and grace being given. Because I don't think grace, by definition, can be something that's offered. Because grace, if God offers grace, it means it's something that He holds out for us to take. And what have we seen? Can we hold out and grab it? If we're spiritually dead and God offers us grace, do we even have the ability to, to, 
Do we have the ability to receive it? I personally believe we don't. I believe grace is given in the sense that when it's given to us as a gift, there's the power to be able to even receive it. Now, let's just talk about grace for a moment. Let's just define grace because I think sometimes we forget. God is not obligated to give it. Is God obligated to give grace? He is not bound to give it, and He is not under compulsion to give it. Then the question is, well, then why does God give grace? And the biblical answer is, because God gives grace. It's because God wants to. It's in His nature to do so. This is what we call a divine passive in the original language. A divine passive means, let's just talk about a passive verb for a moment. I know sometimes we get into the, the grammar and sometimes it's a little bit too deep for, for some, some of these discussions, but a passive verb. What is a passive? A passive versus an active verb. In an active verb, who's doing the action? You're, you're doing the action. In a passive verb, who's doing the action? Somebody else is doing the action that's acting upon you. What would, if this was an active verb, it would say something like this. I give, thanks always, I give thanks to my God always because of the grace that you gave yourself in Christ or something like that. A divine <laughs> passive means God gave us the grace. He's the one that gave it to us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We're the recipients. And so grace by its very definition, grace ceases to be grace if it can be coerced. Grace ceases to be grace if it can be obligated. Grace ceases to be grace because if God were obligated to give it, it wouldn't be grace. What would it be? Something that he owed us. What does God owe us? Wrath. Hell. Destruction. Condemnation. That's what he owes us. That's what we... The wages of sin is what? Death. God chooses not to give us what he owes us. What does he choose to give us? What he does not owe us, which is grace. And he withholds what we should have, and that's mercy. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said this, The whole glory of God, the whole glory of salvation is that though we deserve nothing but punishment and hell and banishment out of the sight of God to all eternity, yet God in His own love and grace and wondrous mercy has granted us this salvation. So let's just pause and ask the question, Who are we as Christians? Number one, we've been sovereignly called out of darkness into God's family. We've been called. Number two, we've sovereignly been sanctified and made saints. We've three, called upon the sovereign Lord and submitted to his rule, and now God has sovereignly granted us grace instead of wrath. And so if that were all there was to be a Christian, we could just stop and jump for joy. God's called us. God sanctified us. God's given us Christ as Lord. We submit to him, and God has given us grace. But here, Paul keeps moving forward. There's some other things that... Me- that define what a Christian is. Fifthly, a Christian has been enriched with every spiritual treasure in Christ. Look at verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in, in Him, Christ, in all speech and knowledge. Now, when he uses the word enriched here, Paul's not talking about material blessing. He's not talking about getting rich. He's talking about spiritual blessings. And he gives two realities. He's kind of introducing spiritual gifts here, sort of. What are the two ways we've been enriched? You guys tell me. Speech and knowledge. Speech and knowledge. 
he's not giving an exhaustive list here of, of spiritual gifts quite yet. But I think what he's doing here is he's giving us two areas that every Christian needs to be enriched in. If you are a Christian, if you are a saint, you need to be enriched in your speech and in your knowledge. So what's speech? First, by speech. Secondly, by knowledge. So how do we need to be enriched in speech? If you are a Christian, how do you need to be enriched in speech? Then it, Jesus promises to do this. By speech means that we've been enriched by Jesus spiritually to give a verbal testimony of our salvation. We've been enriched in our speech. God has made you rich to be able to speak what? Speak about Him. Speak the gospel. So if you are a Christian tonight, God has given you the riches to be able to speak His glory to others. Now, you may not think that you've been enriched, and we may, not, we may live as paupers, not as rich people, but we've got a verse right here that says, God has enriched you in all speech. You can give a verbal profession of the faith of Christ, which means that there's no such thing as a James Bond Christian, a James Bond Christian, a secret agent Christian. Is there such a thing as a Christian out there that doesn't tell anybody? I'm a secret Christian. I'm not going to let anybody know who I am. I'm going to kind of float through the alleyways and I'll, you know, I'm the invisible man. And if somebody, you know, hopefully nobody, nobody will ever know I'm a Christian. I just kind of like live my life. Can we do that as a Christian? What was Jesus' final words to us? You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes and gives you power. So a Christian, by definition, is one who gives verbal testimony. It speaks about Christ. You've been enriched to speak about Christ. So that's the first thing Paul says. You've been enriched with all speech. But secondly, what does is, what is he also enrich you with? All knowledge. Now, ooh, this is scary. You may not think you have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, but as a Christian, God's given you everything you need to know. He's enriched you with the capacity to understand truth. So let me just ask you a question as a Christian. What are the two biggest areas I think most Christians struggle in? I don't know what to say, and I don't know if I have enough knowledge. Would you guys agree with that? I'm afraid. And here's, here's why we're afraid to share the gospel. We're, we're afraid we're going to lose something. And what we're afraid we're going to lose is our reputation, our dignity, maybe our job, maybe a friend. Every time you share the gospel, there's going to be a loss. Fear of man. Don't ever fool yourself into thinking that when you share the gospel, there's no loss. You're going to lose something every time you share the gospel because the very nature of the gospel is somewhat offensive. And the reason we don't share the offensive gospel is we're fear of losing something dear to us. And you fill in the blank whatever that fear is, whatever you're afraid to lose. My reputation, my dignity, my friends, my job. And in this country, we don't lose our life yet, but we, we have fears. So one of the big things we need to be enriched in is what? Being able to speak. The other thing we need to be enriched in is what? You've been enriched with all knowledge. You guys think you know enough about the Bible? No. What do we need to be enriched in? As a Christian, Paul says here, you've been enriched with these things. So whether you know it or not, God has given you everything you need for life and Godliness through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to speak the gospel and to be able to know truth. So you may not think you speak well. 
And you may not think you know a lot, but I bet you in this room tonight, you know a whole lot more than you think you know. And you could probably speak a whole lot more than you think you do. So God's enriched you in those areas. So here's the evidence that you're a Christian. What's the evidence you're a Christian? You are growing in speaking about Jesus and in your knowledge about him. Speech and knowledge. And God's not stingy on this. The word's enriched. Um, she didn't put the verse up there. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay, sixthly. Sixthly, if that's a word. Sixthly. <laughs> If I was a Puritan, I'd be like, point 21. You know, the Puritan sermons are like, they had like 25 points. Now to point 25, sub point 13, three hours later. Okay, sixthly, a Christian has had the testimony about Christ, the gospel, confirmed in them. Now, I need to probably spend a little bit of time explaining the language here, but look at verse 6. Even, now what did he just say? Let's look at the flow of thought here in the text. Context is everything. You've received grace. So what's verse 4? God's given you grace. What's verse 5? That grace has, been, has enriched you with everything you need for what? Speech and knowledge. In verse 6, Paul expands upon that. Even as the testimony about Christ was what? Confirmed about you. Confirmed. Now what in the world does it mean that God has confirmed the testimony about Christ. Is Paul talking about them sharing their testimony or is Paul talking about the gospel testimony of Christ? There's a difference, right? There's a difference between your personal testimony and the gospel. One is about how you got saved. One is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's helpful to have both of those when we share the gospel, but here he's talking about the testimony, what? The testimony about Christ, which is what? The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was confirmed. So what does confirmed mean? That word in the original language, oh, she put it backwards. Um, I'm missing some blanks here, guys. Um, let me give it to you. Some things weren't, weren't put up on the screen that should have been. The word confirmed means that God made it absolutely true and certain to you, and the gospel set you upon your feet not to be moved. Okay, here's what it means. The moment God called you, the moment God gave you his grace, the moment that the facts of the gospel were presented to you and you became a Christian, you believed it as absolutely true and staked your life upon it and set yourself up on the foundation of the gospel never to be moved from it. So it means that as a Christian who has one time been confirmed in the gospel that was absolutely true, how should you be acting and speaking and knowing today? What should your knowledge and your, and your speech be like today? You should still have that same, what? Foundation. But a lot of times what happens with Christians today? Are we as bold as we were when we first got saved? When that testimony was confirmed to us and we, we saw Jesus for who he was and all of his glory and we believed it as absolutely true and we staked our lives upon it and we said, that's what I'm clinging to. That, that's, what we, that's what makes you a Christian. That was confirmed in you. 
Do we see Christians today not standing upon that and becoming what I call evangelifish? <laughs> they have no backbone. They're not. They're denying the gospel. So as a Christian, are you standing firm on your faith? So what is a Christian? A Christian is one who stands firm on his or her faith. Okay, seventhly. Seventhly. I said there were eight, so we're almost done. Seventhly, a Christian has been sovereignly endowed with a spiritual gift. Now look at verse 7. Paul says, so that, he's got a lot of evens and so that, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift. So you, you're not lacking. Paul says, I'm not going to spend time on this here because we're going to get to this eventually, but just turn over to 1 Corinthians 12 for just a moment. Paul spends three chapters talking about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And then he goes on down there and look at verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So who gives you a spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit. Do you get to choose your spiritual gift? No, the Holy Spirit gives it as He sees fit. And Paul here back in verse 7 says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. So, Christian, one of the evidences that you are a Christian is that God has given you at least one spiritual gift, if not more. You're not lacking in that. Now, here's the question. You may not know what your spiritual gift is. You may struggle with what it is. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because we'll eventually get to that. But the one thing you need to know is that you're not lacking in that. Now, you may not understand what it is yet, Here's the best way to discover your spiritual gifts. Let's just stop real quick. Here, here's the way I, I kind of encourage people. Number one, what, I don't, I'm not a big fan of spiritual gifts inventories. They're man-made little fill-in-the-bubbles that kind of give you the answer. No one in the Bible do you ever tell anybody to do a spiritual gift inventory. Those are sort of helpful, but here's the best way I, I would say it. Are there needs in a church? Yes. Do people need to step up and do those needs? Yes. So I would be on the lookout for what are the needs in the church? What do I have a passion to do? What do I like to do? What do I, what do I feel compelled to do? What, do I, what are my interests? And if I see a need in the church and I go meet that need, and as I am meeting that need, others in the church will begin to look and see, wow, that person's really excelling in that area. And, and the body will sometimes confirm that gift in you. And if it doesn't quite work out, you may be like, well, you know, I served, but that's not really my gifting. My dad always said it like this. It's kind of like spaghetti. How do you know spaghetti's done? You throw it against the wall and it sticks. Sometimes you just have to throw stuff against the wall and if it sticks, that's your spiritual gift. But here's the thing. We don't do that in our house, no. My dad did. So, yeah, we don't do that in our house. Dawn actually checks the spaghetti and makes sure that it's done because um, she can tolerate the heat coming out of it. But um, the, the issue is this. Oftentimes what happens in church is... People sit around trying to figure out what spiritual gift they have and needs don't get met because nobody steps up to meet a need. What drives the church? You discovering your spiritual gift or actually serving to meet a need? The need. Serving, you know, 
Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say discover your spiritual gift. It says you've got one, use it. So if there's needs and there's areas of ministry to be plugged into, just plug in. And if it's not what you like doing, do it for a while and then pray that God leads somebody else to do it. But, um, yeah. So, anyway, I won't spend much time, more time on that. But here's the eighth one. Here's the eighth one. A Christian will experience eternal security by God's sustaining grace. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. Let's just stop and recap, okay? Number one, a Christian is one who's been sovereignly called by God out of darkness into light. Number two, you've been sanctified. You've been made a saint. Number three, you've submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Number four, you have been a recipient of grace. Number five, you've been enriched to be able to speak and to know about Jesus. Number six, you believe the gospel is absolutely true. It was confirmed in you. Number seven, you've been given a spiritual gift. But number eight, here's the last one. Who, verse 8, who will sustain you? This is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul addresses two doctrines here. And they're two sides of the same coin. One is eternal security and one's perseverance of the saints. Or two sides of the same coin. One means God will make sure that we stay saved. The other one says, we've got to make sure that we persevere to stay saved. Now you may say, well, that sounds like a contradiction. What does the text say? Who's going to sustain you to the end? God. But what do you have to do? You have to make it to the end. So you still have to make it to the end. That's the perseverance. But who ensures that you make it to the end? God does. So we persevere because God preserves. We make it to the end because God will make sure we make it to the end. Now, let's go to 1 Peter on the screen here, 1 Peter 3, because I think 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5, gives us a picture from Peter's vantage point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Just a side note, do we cause ourselves to be born again? No, He caused us to be born again. To what? A living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance. Now, what's the inheritance? Heaven. And how does He describe that? It's undefiled. It's imperishable. It's unfading. And where is it? It's kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are what? Being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what Paul is saying here, or what Peter's saying here, is that, okay, God's caused you to be born again. And God has your inheritance waiting for you in heaven. And it's undefiled. It's kept there. It's on permanent reserve for you there. It's like this. One time, um, Don and I, and I think you've heard the story, don't ever like wait to the last minute to go get a hotel when you're going through Alamosa. It was just whenever we go anywhere, there's a baseball tournament. There's a baseball tournament. So <laughs> we were like, we, we went up backpacking, and it started raining, and so we came down the mountain, and we are going to drive all the way back to Colorado Springs, and it got really too late, so we're like, oh, let's stop in Alamosa. 
it's like the closest town or whatever. That I'm like, well, we could probably make it to Pueblo, but it's getting late. Well, there's this big, huge baseball tournament in Alamosa that night. So we go to every hotel. <laughs> to try, <laughs> No vacancy, no vacancy. So finally we get to the very last hotel, and it was a... What? It was Roach Motel. I mean, it was Roach Motel, Biker Motel, whatever else was happening behind there, drug deal. And so we're like, so we were young, and we're like, okay, we're so tired, we can't drive. It's like 30 bucks a night. Hey, let's do it. And so we, we slept, in the, and Don's like, I don't know if you even slept. She, like, wanted to get up real early, and I probably made you stay there. We probably could have driven longer. But anyway, here's the point. Here's the point. When you get to heaven... Is God going to say, you know what, we messed up on your reservation? <laughs> it wasn't really kept for you. We gave it away. We had no vacancies, and really your name's not on the list. So I'm really sorry that we messed up. I'll give you a refund. Is God going to say that? What does it say there? It's kept in heaven for you. So your eternal security is kept for you. So it's there. But how do you get there? Verse 5, by God's power, what's God's power doing? He's guarding you through faith. So you're living the life of faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the whole time God is guarding you. That word guarding was really to describe an army of troops used to protect a city from an oncoming enemy. So this is not like some type of God sitting back and passively. It's like God's on full alert, making sure that you will enter heaven. We know this passage of Scripture. Romans eight thirty five through 39 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am neither, or I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this verse is misinterpreted a lot. Does this verse mean we won't go through those things? That verse says we will go through those things, but what's the one thing we can't be separated from? The love of God in Christ Jesus. So God never promises we're not going to have a, we're going to never have to deal with death or or the sword or famine or nakedness. He just promises that in the end we will be eternally secure. Nothing can separate us from him. And then what does Jude say? Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Praise the Lord. So God is going to keep you from stumbling. If you're truly one of God's, He's going to keep you from stumbling. Corinthian church, you're going to stumble. You're going to make some mistakes. Christian behaving badly. But if you're a true Christian, He's not going to make you stumble beyond the point of no return. And what's He going to do? He's going to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. What does 1 Corinthians say? Let's go back and read our text. Who will sustain you to the end? God will sustain you to the end. Guiltless, meaning what? The day you enter heaven, you're not going to have any guilt. You're going to be able to enter. Your reservation is going to be kept. But look at verse 9. God is faithful. We will eternally persevere because God is faithful to make sure that we eternally persevere. So, if we look at the opening greeting and thanksgiving of 1 Corinthians, we see what it means to be a Christian. And so I've kind of summarized it in some statements here. 
Before time, God planned me to be saved. In a point in time, God called me to be saved. Right now, God is working in me to keep me saved. In the future, God will guarantee that I am eternally saved. Think about that. Your salvation happened before time. It happened at a point of time. It's happening now and it happened in the future. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. God is faithful to do that. So before we begin to act like Christians, what does Paul want to stop and do? He wants to remind them that you are Christians. And every time Paul's going to address an issue, he's going to go back and say, remember who you are. You're a Christian behaving badly. That's not your identity. You may be acting like that right now, but that's not who you are. Who are you? You're a called one. You're a saint. You've been sanctified. You belong to the Lord. God's, God's made you not guilty. You've been enriched with everything that you need. Now, remember this, Corinthians. Remember who you are because you're not acting in line with who you are. And so the motivation for us not to sin What's the motivation for us not to sin? Is it for me to say to you every Sunday, don't do these things, because if you do these things, it's really bad. Come on, church, get with it. Don't do these things. Don't do these sins. If you do these sins, things are going to go bad for you. Now, is there anything wrong in saying that? What should we be saying? Here's the gospel. And because of who you are in Christ and the gospel, why would you want to do those things? It's not in line with who you are. So it's an issue of reminding yourself of who you are. We say preaching the gospel to yourselves. Now, for those of you that never heard that term, it doesn't mean that you stand up in a pulpit and you start looking in the mirror and saying, thus says the Lord, and start spitting and, you know, acting like a preacher. Preach the gospel to yourself means that on a daily basis, you remind yourself of who you are in Christ. So let me walk you through what preaching yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself may look like with this passage of Scripture. So, for example, if you had a quiet time tomorrow, Let's say that you had a quiet time tomorrow and you opened up 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and this was your devotional reading in your quiet time and you read this and you kind of meditated upon this and you thought about this. This is how you would possibly pray back to Jesus. Dear Jesus, I am so thankful that you've called me. I'm a called one. I did not deserve to be called, but you called me out of darkness. I could have been, thank you that you called me out of darkness. I know the darkness you've called me out of. I know the pit you called me out of. You've called me into your, into your family, so thank you, Jesus, for calling me. And not only that, you've sanctified me. Jesus, I'm a saint. I can't believe that you'd make that to me, but, but help me, Jesus, to remember that's who I am. And Lord Jesus, I want to submit to your lordship because you are the Lord, and thank you for grace that you've given me. And Lord, thank you that you've, you've made me guiltless. You're going to sustain me to the end. Thank you that you're, fa- that you're faithful. And so in light of this, in light of the fact that you've called me, Lord, that you've sanctified me, that I, that I am yours, that you're going to sustain me, help me this day to live in light of that. And when I fail, help me to remember that you're still going to sustain me to the end. And when I fail, help me to go back and remember how you've saved me in the gospel. That would be a way you preach the gospel to yourself. You may not say it that loud, but when I pray, I pray out loud. And I don't do that just because I think it's mystical. I just do it so I don't fall asleep. Um, when I do my, but, uh, but I mean, I think sometimes when you preach the gospel to yourself, it's just reminding yourself from the scriptures of what God says is true about who you are and using that as the motivation for you to live your life for him.